0: good morning let's open our bibles i think most people know by now to the gospel of luke chapter one we will begin semi-officially beginning our study in the book of luke actually we did the first four verses last week and we're going to read the first episode the announcement of the birth of john the baptist this morning As I say often, we don't always have titles for our sermons, but we're going to have one this morning. We'll call it, What on Earth is God Doing? That may sound a little irreverent, so we'll have a subtitle, What is God Doing on the Earth? Okay, is that better? All right. Uh, We'll begin reading in verse 5 of uh, Luke chapter 1. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived and she hid herself five months, saying, thus, the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zacharias, okay, uh, we just, if most of you regulars here know, we uh, studied this not too long ago because we just finished a series on characters in the Bible, and we did Zacharias just a few months ago, so um, although when I work with guys, I tell them, don't worry about that, when you re-preach or re-teach a passage, it's amazing how God gives you a brand new message, So we're not going to do a character study this morning on Zacharias. We've already done that. We're going to take a different look at this passage. And that is we're going to see how it fits in the dealings of God with people. And not just the nation of Israel, but uh, the earth in general. We're going to take the very long look uh, by looking at how this fits in. Just to give you a quick idea before I discuss a few details this is the first time God has spoken for 400 years. Okay, isn't that cool? Think about it. The last time God spoke was back in Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament. Now, it's not that God doesn't do anything in the intervening 400 years, okay? He's upholding all things by the word of his power, and he's intervening in lives and doing all kinds of things. But as far as speaking, that is revealing something directly to men. He hasn't done that for 400 years. And now he breaks his silence. And of all places, it's wonderful he does it in the temple. Isn't that cool? You know, think about it. It's been 400 years. God's going to speak again. Well, where is he going to do it? He could have done it out on a field somewhere or in a village, some guy's house. But he chose the temple. And not just the temple, but inside this is those of you who are familiar with the construction of the temple or the uh tabernacle uh, the building itself is divided into two sections the outer section the holy place into which the general levites could go the priests and then the inner sanctum so to speak the holy of holies a cube a perfect cube with a veil in front of it into which only one man was permitted to go once a year because that place behind the veil the holy of holies represented the very presence of god you you with me here most of you know that yeah so that's where uh zacharias is doing his his service by the way you may be wondering about this order and and and, uh, casting lots and so on it goes really goes back to chronicles when uh they first solomon actually first set up uh or david the um Uh, way the the priests ministered there were too many of them by now to all of them come to the temple and serve there were just too many and so they divided them up into uh units and by family depending on which family you were in you served twice a year you got to go to jerusalem and serve in the temple twice a year okay now you may be going ho-hum but let me tell you this was a big thing if you were a Jew in those days and the biggest thing of all was to actually when they cast lots to get to go in and burn the incense on the golden altar right in front of the veil right on the other side of which was symbolically the presence of God so um, Zacharias is a lucky man okay I, I say it in quotes because it wasn't luck obviously God wanted to speak to him in fact, God had chosen him and his wife to have John the Baptist as their child. By the way, you should notice it's interesting. You would think at 400 years. OK, we're going to get the ball rolling again here. It would be the high priest that God would speak to. This is a nobody. Some guy that comes twice a year to do some duties and go back home again. It's not. The qualifications, of course, were given us in verse six. They were righteous. And blame it doesn't mean they were sinless. It just means you couldn't bring a charge against them according to the law. They were very, they loved the Lord. Let's put it that way. Okay? <clears throat> so, picture yourself. Uh, this, is, this is quite an awesome thing. He's drawn the lot to go in and burn the incense. And again, for those of you not familiar, within the uh, actual temple itself, corresponding to the old tabernacle, there were only three furnishings in that outer room there was the table of showbread the golden um candelabra the candlestick and right in the center right in front of the veil the golden altar the incense was burned on okay and that's like you know here's the veil and there's the altar right in front of it. so if this is the altar of incense like the veil you know is right there so there's the presence of god right on the other side by the way um you know, if you're familiar with the tabernacle at all, tabernacle that just inside the veil was what? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Ark was gone. And so in this particular case, it was an empty room. Do you know that? Yeah, the Babylonians had, had taken away the Ark way back when. And so the, the second uh, temple, Zerubbabel's temple, didn't have an Ark in it. And this one didn't have an Ark. It was an empty room. Okay, but still, from God's point of view, it still represented the place where he met with the high priest once a year. So it's it's important then that God chose this place like right in front of the veil near the the presence, as it was called, to speak to Zacharias. What is really neat about this and what we're going to focus on this morning, by the way, is prophecy. Prophecy. We use that word all the time. It's a remarkable thing when you uh, think about it. Prophecy. Biblically speaking, what that means is God says beforehand what is going to happen. And then when the time comes, it happens exactly the way he said it would. Okay. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but it is. I mean, you, you say, well, I can prophesy. Uh <clears throat> I'm going to walk over to that chair. It's fulfilled. I'm a prophet, right? See, now the thing is, I was at the mercy of God. He could have demonstrated to you how frail I am. I could have had a heart attack between here. And- I'm serious. Couldn't I? I could not guarantee I was going to make that trip successfully. Okay? So, guys are not like that. When he says it's going to happen, let me tell you, it's going to happen. Guaranteed. All right? <clears throat> but not only that, <clears throat> it, we're not talking about little things like that. We're talking about nations and, and great events on the earth that he predicts, as well as small things. There's a prophecy within a prophecy here when he tells Zacharias, You and your wife are going to have a, a son, and you're going to call his name John. That's a prophecy. Did it happen? Just like God said it would. That's right. Okay. And the other thing, of course, about God saying ahead of time he's going to do things. He has opposition. Okay. (laughs) He has opposition like nobody's business. The forces of darkness try their best to thwart the purposes of God. But praise God, they'll never be able to do it. Every single thing God has said is going to take place will take place. With no alterations. Exactly the way he said it. What's, what's really neat about this, if you look at verse 17, I don't know if you ever noticed this before, God picks up here in Luke at his, where he breaks his silence, so to speak, exactly where he left off at the end of the Old Testament. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> uh, Gabriel says, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, I have that phrase italicized in my Bible. It's important. We're going to look at it in Malachi in a minute. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Turn back to Malachi. It's easy to find. Very last book in the Old Testament. By the way, be careful. Uh, You know, you think, oh, yeah, of course it is because it's the last one in time. Not all of the prophets are ordered by time. Some actually come after others in the Bible, but they take place before. Okay, don't worry about that. It doesn't change the inerrancy of the scripture any. Okay, but Malachi is the last book in the Bible, and time-wise, it's the last book. Now, you turn to the very end of Malachi. The last thing God says to a prophet that he had written down is here in verse, uh, chapter 4, Verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Read along with me here. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet um, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's that phrase. You see it? You with me? Turn the hearts of the, of the uh, fathers to the That's exactly what Gabriel quotes when he talks to Zacharias and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's so cool. God said this 400 years before this. 400, that's a long. That's almost twice as long as we've been a country. 400 years goes by. He doesn't say another word. As I said, no, it doesn't mean he's not doing anything, but he's not revealing any new, uh, this is redundant, revelation. <clears throat> Finally, he speaks for the first time, to this uh, this guy who's uh, burning incense, and he picks up right where he left off, his last words. That is so neat. It's it's kind of like you know God is carrying on a conversation, and then he steps out for a minute, comes back four hundred years later, and just picks up right where he left off. Okay. Um, now uh, there's more here that he said uh, about. Um, John in, uh, in uh, Malachi chapter 3. Uh, before we look at that, I want you to uh, notice something here. <clears throat> notice it said, before that great and dreadful day. Did you catch that? Uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Wait a minute. I'll send you a light before the... But that's not talking about when Jesus first came. So what's going on? Uh, and then later in that, those verses, it says, In the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Whoa, wait a minute. Something's, something's wrong here. <clears throat> no, it's not. <clears throat> because look <clears throat> at what Gabriel quoted. Did Gabriel talk about the great and dreadful day of the Lord? No. He only quoted the section that applied Okay, but about preparing the hearts. And here we run into the issue and most of the believers, you know, this God, when he spoke in the Old Testament about when the Lord Jesus was going to come. We know now that Jesus is going to come twice. He's already come once. Isn't it neat living at this time, knowing that Jesus has come the first time? Zacharias didn't know that. And now we're just waiting for the second one. And so the point is, this verse has, like many others, a double fulfillment. You got it? And so what what is going to happen, just like Jesus came the first time, and he's going to come a second time, the first time there was a forerunner, someone who came before him to prepare the way. And that was John the Baptist. The the second time he's going to come, similarly, there's going to be, a prophet, just like Elijah, just like John the Baptist was, who's going to prepare the way again for the Lord Jesus. So it's a double fulfillment. Uh, let me just... you are Most of you are familiar with this. I'll just give you another example. In uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and he opens the scripture to read the passage to the audience in the synagogue. And he turns to Isaiah chapter 61 And he reads this: "The spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to heal, the broken-hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is so neat because it was written in the first person. 700 years ago and when jesus reads it he's reading it about himself wouldn't that be so cool to have heard that you know he has sent me he when he says he's talking about himself and what's neat is after he he closed it says the book it would have been a scroll he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and it says everybody was looking at him and he sat there and he, and he and he looks around and he says this day These words have been fulfilled in the hearing of your ears. Oh, man. End of sermon. Okay. That is so neat. Why am am I talking about this verse? I'm talking about that verse because if you go back and look at the verse he read, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, there's another phrase that he left out deliberately. Here's the way it ends in Isaiah. Isaiah. Um, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. See, the day of vengeance hadn't come yet. That's the second time he's going to come. So it's so neat. God collapses both times. Jesus came typically into one section. It drove the prophets crazy. It literally did. Because they'd read this and they'd go, what? Is he going to suffer or is he going to reign? Is this the same guy? You know, here's here's the way uh, Peter says it <clears throat> of the salvation. The prophets have inquired and in searched, and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. And the glories that would follow. You got that? In other words, the prophets are writing down, as, as Don spoke last, last week, they're writing down inspired words from God and they get, and they get done and they read what they just wrote and they go, whoa, sufferings and glories. And they think about it and it says they inquire diligently and they couldn't figure it out. No kidding. Uh, there's a good, um, analogy or or metaphor to try to picture this some people have pictured it like being at a distance and seeing a, a range of mountains and when you look at it you can see the mountain in front but if there's one right in line with it behind it you can see beyond and also see the second mountain and up close they look like they're right next to each other but when you get up to it you find out they're very far apart okay That's a good analogy. The first coming and the second coming so far are at least a couple of thousand years apart. But in the scripture, God has compressed them like with those cameras, you know, where they do foreshortened pictures and uh, put them together very often in the scripture. Uh, Anyway, he goes on to say, Peter does to them. It was revealed that not to themselves that we're talking about the prophets now, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering these things. Isn't that cool? Isaiah wasn't writing for himself. He didn't even know what he was writing. Now, sometimes he did. But when he wrote Isaiah 53, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What? Who? Isaiah would read then and he go, who's this? We know. He was writing for us. He was writing for you. Um, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and I love this last phrase, things which angels long to look into. Isn't that cool? Gabriel, the guy here, we saw, hes he's been longing all this time. He knows these scriptures, okay? Neat thing, angels did not have to sleep, you know? They're very familiar with the scripture. And they couldn't figure it out either. They long, it says they long to, they want to know so bad. What is God going to do? What on earth is God doing? But it's hidden from them. <clears throat> just imagine if he had known in advance that what God was saying was he was going to send his son. God the son. He would become a man. we just got through singing about that. That's incredible. He would be crucified by men. What? And in that act, he would die for men's sins. Oh, man. I think if Gabriel had a heart, he would have had a heart attack if he'd known that. I think he still did when he found out. When he saw it happening, you know. Oh, man. But no, it wasn't time for him or anybody else to know. It was God's secret. The word is mystery. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. God calls it a mystery. In the Bible, a mystery doesn't mean a whodunit like, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something. A mystery is something that God hides. He keeps secret until the time comes when he reveals it to everybody. <clears throat> In Isaiah, God is talking about uh, something he's going to do. And, and I love the phrase he uses because this could apply to all prophecy. He says, indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will also do it. That that applies to all prophecy. It's going to happen. That's what he's saying. Why? Why does God why is the Bible so full of so much prophecy? First of all, to demonstrate who he is. Okay? He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. That's omnipotent. He is faithful. He's truth, not truthful. He is truth. God cannot lie. So it says in the Old Testament, he's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and shall he he not do it? Has he spoken and shall it not come to pass? Secondly, to encourage. Now, particularly, we're talking about those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, those who know him. Isn't it great to know know what's going to happen, brothers and sisters? You know? You and I know exactly what's going to happen. And it's a good thing. On the flip side, to warn. God tells things that are going to happen to warn those who do not know Him. So they can take action now to get ready. And finally... To confirm this book. Okay, we talked about that last week. Uh, Don mentioned it in passing. Within this book, there are literally thousands of things that God says that will happen. And like I said, it's so neat. Already, many of them have been fulfilled so that we can say, yeah, so far, God's working 100%. Okay. There's a lot more, though, that have not been fulfilled than have. You need to think about that. Because if the first set were fulfilled perfectly, what does that say about the second group? It's going to happen just like God says. Okay, so here we are, Zacharias serving and suddenly God speaks to him. And so let's kind of get the picture here. For thousands of years, God had been saying in his word that someone was going to come. This someone, you know, when you know, when the first prophecy about Jesus, you know where it is in the Bible, I think most of you know. Genesis. What chapter? That's right. I was going to say, too, but it's actually chapter three where he talks about the curse. He talks about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. OK, but the serpent wounding his heel. That's a prophecy of the cross. Satan wounding uh, the Lord Jesus But uh, Jesus gaining final victory over him. That's pretty early. And then all the way through Malachi, uh, God tells about this one who's going to come. And the Jews have been expectant, waiting, waiting, waiting. Most of them today are still waiting. But the Messiah has already come. Jesus uh, said to the Jews at one point, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And by the way, he doesn't correct them because they're right. But he goes on to say, and they are they which speak of me. Wow. You, you, he said, the book you're reading that you're trying to find eternal life from, and it's in there. You know what this book talks about? He summarizes it. Here, here's a Cliff's Notes summary on the Bible. Jesus. That's it. They are they which speak of me, he said. <clears throat> Later on the road to Emmaus. It uh, would have been so neat to be. There was a long walk. But I think the disciples thought it was uh, too short because it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the scriptures pertaining to himself. All of them. From Moses to Malachi, God had been speaking and having his prophets write it down and then preserving it. <clears throat> By the way, uh, I, it's it's so funny when people say, oh, but... But wait a minute, you know, uh, they wrote it down and and maybe it's been changed or maybe what about all the lost books of the Bible? What about all the errors that have crept in? I'm sorry, you know, hello. If you're thinking like that, then you don't understand who God is. That's where the problem lies. If indeed there is one God who created the universe, who sent his son to die for our sins. And the one place. He tells about it is here. I don't think that omnipotent, sovereign God is going to go, whoops. Oh, no. The only record. It's messed up. How are they going to know? It's not going to happen. Okay, And it didn't. One of the great proofs of that, by the way good study, uh, if you've never read um, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great book. He goes in and talks about fulfilled prophecy. And in the introductory section, he talks about the ancient writings that you can go to any library and get. You know, Plato's, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these guys. And then he has a, a little chart where he shows the number of manuscripts we have upon which those books are based. How many do you think it is Typically. Yeah, it's less than 10. Did you know that? Or on the order of 10. That's embarrassing. You know how many uh, we have supporting the scripture? Tens of thousands. Okay, There's no comparison. That's not an accident. And uh, to me, one of the uh, coolest ones actually happened right around when I was born in 1947. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. And before that time, I think the oldest... A copy of Isaiah they had was a Masoretic text in around 400 AD. 400 years after Christ. Now Isaiah wrote it 700 years before Christ. You following me? So before then, the newest one they had, or the oldest one they had, was 400 years after Christ. Oh man, you should have heard the skeptics going crazy. Oh man, somebody made it up after Jesus. Guess what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? This leather, ram-skin, ram scroll- roll of all of isaiah and you know when it's dated to 200 bc 200 years before jesus and you can turn to that scroll you can take out your current english bible right now and just read along in the hebrew it's that accurate which right there that's a miracle by the way to transmit something that many times and you can turn right there to isaiah 53 and there it is before christ okay well god had been speaking He, uh, he, in a sense, we say he completed the Old Testament. He spoke for the last time in uh, Malachi uh, chapter four. We just saw it. And then 400 years of silence. And then he breaks the silence and he begins with this announcement that we just uh, read about. I told you that there was another prophecy that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. If you, do you still have Malachi, if you do turn to chapter three, you'll see it there in verses 1 and 2 of Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. You go, that's funny. Why is he like soap? You think of ivory or the liquid uh, stuff. This is like lye. The soap they had in those days, you you don't get it on your skin. You know, it's like the things, you know, do not eat or swallow or something. It was bad stuff. It's potent stuff. I read that whole section because, again, you notice both comings are portrayed here. The first and the second. I hope you noticed one thing there, by the way. Who's speaking in this passage? The Lord. Right? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Wait a minute. Who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, what's one and one? Can you put those two together? John the Baptist was supposed to prepare the way for God. But John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. Hmm. Jesus is God. Uh, Later, the Lord Jesus uh, talks about the John the Baptist. And uh, he quotes that verse. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he ends by saying he is Elijah who is to come. Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. Uh, Who who is John the Baptist and how does Elijah fit in? That's the big issue. People kind of are confused on that. Well, it's real simple. First of all, some people think that John the Baptist was literally Elijah. Okay? Well, we can put that one to rest. Use the Bible. You'd be amazed how many questions you can answer just by looking in here. They asked John uh, right out in John 2, Are you Elijah? What did he say? No. So, John the Baptist is not Elijah. Okay? He knows who he is. It's not like God, okay? Let me tell you. Elijah went to be with the Lord. If you knew what heaven was like, you would realize he does not want to come back. No, I'm serious. God wouldn't do a thing like that. Sorry, Elijah, you got to go back. No way. Well, then how can Jesus say he, he is Elijah who is to come? It's the Jesus said it right. He is Elijah who is to come. What he means is he was the guy that's like Elijah who was prophesied to come. Okay? Whenever you can take the Bible literally, do so. Okay? Uh, As Gene used to say in the intro program, if the first sense makes sense, don't try to make any other sense. Okay? And that's usually the case. Sometimes God uh, speaks in metaphors or symbolically. And here he just means uh, Elijah, the spirit of Elijah. In fact, he says that. He will come in the spirit of Elijah. So we'll put that one to rest. Another example of that, by the way, is Babylon in the book of Revelation. You know, Babylon, the great, has fallen, that great city of commerce and so on. Now, it's not really the ruined city over in currently Iraq that God is talking about. He may be talking about a whole collection of cities or a system of commerce. It's not clear. Rome, some people, we don't know. It's most probably not that city. He used it symbolically. And so uh, the the, uh, forerunner of the Lord Jesus, both times, by the way, first time he came and the second time he came, are very much like Elijah. John the Baptist certainly was. He dressed like him. He spoke like him. Some think the second time is going to be the two witnesses, and we won't go into that. But there are two witnesses in Revelation who call down fire from heaven um, they're very Elijah-like. They're prophets. And um, they're the ones that God preserves until the Antichrist gets a hold of them and kills them. But then they come back to life. Okay. Interesting, by the way, I'll tell you, it's like weekly. There are things that bring the Bible alive that happen in the world that couldn't have happened before. One of the examples is about the witnesses. When when they're dead, it says their bodies are lying in the streets. And it says in the Old Testament or pardon me in Revelation that the whole world saw them. How could John in ninety AD write something like that? He knows better than that. You know, everybody's not going to travel to Babylon or wherever it was, you know, symbolically, and see these guys. Well, can we understand today how the whole world could see these guys? Yeah. Absolutely. On their iPhones, that's right. I love the Word of God. Uh, the, the skeptics have had egg on their face so many times. It's incredible. Revelation has got so many things that there's no way they could have understood at that time what they meant. And it's only recently that in some cases we, we realize they're perfectly described for something today. And that's a whole nother section of prophecy. We could spend weeks just talking about this. But for example, Um, John talks about a burning mountain coming from the sky and striking the earth. And the skeptics say, well, he didn't call it a comet. Well, of course he didn't. The word didn't exist. Hello. But he, John described it as it appeared to him. And you've seen pictures, you know, photographs. What do comets and meteors look like when they get in the earth? Or a meteor when it gets in the earth's atmosphere or a comet when it's going by the sun? It looks like What? A burning mountain. Cool. Um, <clears throat> the, one of the neatest ones. I don't know. Nobody else has picked up on this one yet. I noticed it several years ago. It's GRBs. Oh, I, yeah. Russ remembers. Gamma ray bursters. That, that passage in Revelation. It's, it's a terrifying scene. John says, I saw heaven rolled back like a scroll. Can you imagine seeing the sky being peeled back? I have, I've shown it before, I'll show it again sometime. CBS News did a study on gamma ray bursars of these huge blasts of energy that come from way out in space. If it were to hit the earth, the earth would be a cinder. Toast. Okay? Um, And a near miss would be bad enough. But the point is, it would uh, change the uh, ozone and the nitrogen in the atmosphere to nitrous oxides. You know what? You know where we find nitrous oxides? Smog. And so the sky would suddenly, as as over time, it would take a time for it to react across the sky. If a gamma ray uh, burster hit, it, it would actually. And they show it on this CBS thing. They don't talk about the Bible at all. They're talking about physics. And the and the and the uh, graphic is you see this dense dark. Um, brownish black just cover the sky starting at one and going across the other just like revelation says okay we could go on and on about the prophecies in revelation but uh what's cool is to see them being uh realized in our own time on the other hand they're going to happen let me tell you right now you don't want to be here when these things begin to happen <clears throat> OK. Um, now, I want to talk about probably uh, last of all, the timing here <clears throat> on the birth of John. In other words, there has been 400 years of silence. Why now? Why not 500 years? Why not 100? In this particular case, God was restricted to a timetable. In fact, it was very exact. It's not tied into John the Baptist It's tied into Jesus. And I think most of you remember the series we've done more than once on the 70 weeks of Daniel. Does that ring a bell at all to? Yeah. Where God in Daniel 9 in four very short verses says in advance. OK, uh, 500 years, 400 years. No, five, six, seven. Uh, about 500 years before Christ. Daniel says, uh, predicts the day when Jesus is going to ride on the donkey into Jerusalem. From the going forth of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. That's the phrase. OK, and you can work it out to the day. That is so cool. Um, and so God was restricted by that time span. He had already said when Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem. Well, then that's a particular day. It's around 32 A.D. You have to go backwards. His birth is going to have to happen About 30 years before that, because the Lord Jesus died for us when he was in his prime. He had three years of ministry and then died for our sins when he was literally a a young man. And so that's why it was 400 years. And so John the Baptist, since he's going to be the forerunner for Jesus, and he's going to have to point him out, uh, is going to have to be like uh, several months or a year before Jesus. So that's why the timing on this. But it's not just an arbitrary arithmetic date. God does things at the best time. Do you know that? It's not just, you know, uh, bingo, you know, you reach in and draw a number, you know, 061 or something. No, he does it at the best time or at exactly the right time. It says in Galatians, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That word fullness, it sounds like a vague term, but let me tell you, it's not. God could measure fullness. And it was just the right time for his son to come when he sent him. In fact, uh, Romans 5, 6, one of the times I like the NASB better than the King James, says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Isn't that neat? At the right time. Okay, um, this idea of fullness uh, is going to come into play here on the last thing we're going to talk about. Fullness. It's something only God can measure. He used it, for example, in the Old Testament. He promised Abraham the land of Israel, right? You know that? But he didn't let him go in right away. Do You know why? He told him. He said, the sin of the Amorites is not yet, what? Yeah. Full. Isn't that interesting? In other words, their sin is bad, but it's not so bad that I have to come in and judge it yet. Only I can measure that. It's not like, you know, we, the we do, you know, that's it, I've had enough. You know, we blow our top, right? No. It's that God's long-suffering and patience has to come to an end. And it finally did. But we're talking 400 years. That's how much longer he waited. Boy, is he ever patient. I'm a living testimony to that myself. the fullness of the time. Well, uh, where is all of this heading? In other words, we we asked the question at the beginning, um, what on earth is God doing? Or what is God doing on the earth? We've seen several things that he has said in advance he's going to do. There are tons of things that haven't happened yet that he said are going to take place. But I can summarize for you the ultimate goal Of God's dealings is that Christ would have the preeminence in all things. That's it. That Jesus be at the top. worshipped, exalted, recognized for who he is. Having all power and all might and all strength. Okay, that's that's simple, isn't it? That's where that's where we are heading. And let me tell you, we're going to get there. You know, uh, Psalm two, where, where uh, the uh, people of the earth say, "You know, let us tear their chains asunder." Talking about how we're going to break away from God, and it says, "He who sits in the heavens laughs." He says, "I have set my king on my on his holy hill. I have set him on the throne." Past tense, not "I will," "I have." Okay, so let me give you an idea. Uh, I had to select just a few quotes here just to reinforce these are prophecies that have not yet happened but they talk about what we just said isaiah 9 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and i told several of you uh, as i've talked to you in the last couple of weeks this this phrase has i just been going around in my head these last several months and the government will be upon his shoulder Is that refreshing? Oh, man. And it's so strong. It doesn't just say he's going to be the governor. It says the government will be on his shoulder. He is by himself going to take all the power and the responsibility. Couldn't be in better hands. Oh, man, is that going to be good? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end is that interesting word strain to try to describe the goodness and the greatness of the kingdom of jesus christ when when he is finally where he should be how can the uh the peace and the government increase and in fact it's going to increase and never stop increasing it says of the increase there will be no end what that says is it's is going to get better and better okay there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Not four years or six. Forever. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, this is in Jeremiah, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Hasn't happened yet. So it has to happen because God said so. Daniel says this, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is Daniel. What? 500 years before Jesus. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Are you noticing a common theme here? These are three different guys, by the way. Okay. They didn't know each other writing the same thing. Zechariah, even later. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one jump ahead now so far we've been four five six seven hundred years before jesus roughly a hundred years after jesus this is what it looks like when it happens because john got a glimpse of it in a vision then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever you know the Messiah, you know the melody for that one. In case you're wondering who it is, by the way, uh, go back to Luke chapter 1. We'll look at this, Lord willing, next time. Because Gabriel's not done with his errands. He's going to have another one later to go to Mary. And uh, he gives us another clue about these verses we've just been reading. Verse 30. It's Jesus. Okay, what's next? What is God doing on earth? There's so much left to happen. But uh, as I read this passage, I thought, you know, uh, the time we're in right now is very much like the time that Zacharias was in. God had spoken and spoken and spoken. I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. I'm going to do that. It hadn't happened. And all of a sudden, in a burst of activity, hundreds of those prophecies were fulfilled in a few short years. Not all of them. Most of them are still yet to be fulfilled. Okay? And so, God's been silent, and I've already explained what I mean by that, for 2,000 years. But uh, it's like we're in a state of tension, okay, if you think about it. God has said all these things are going to happen. But they haven't happened. Romans 7 puts it this way. It says creation is groaning. It's like there's a, a strain while things are allowed to go on this way with uh, sin rampant on the earth. Well, it's going to have to happen. And uh, the, the first thing that's going to happen is the rapture. Uh, we're not going to read it. First uh, Thessalonians 4 and uh, 1 Corinthians 15 very plainly teach that the first thing that's going to happen is God's going to get the Christians out of here before he starts dealing with the earth and bringing judgment. But then the, the next two things that happen are consistent throughout prophecy. And I'm talking about this this morning because uh, it, it astounded me that events around the world have brought uh, one of these points very strongly to the forefront. I'm talking about anarchy. The first two things after the Christians are gone to happen. Number one, this guy called the Antichrist. You've heard of him like nobody you've ever seen. He's going to be revealed. The second thing that's going to happen is there's going to be lawlessness all over the earth. And God's consistent in talking about that all over the place. Lawlessness. Captured the headlines the last several days, hasn't it? England, London, Birmingham, Liverpool, Leeds, Philadelphia. Ever heard of a flash mob? You've been hearing about it? It was a wonderful idea Uh, about a decade ago. Some guy thought, hey, we got all this uh, social media going, you know, Twitter and so on, and people have iPhones and uh, iPods and Verizon wireless and I don't know what all. You know, it would be so cool for everybody just to suddenly gather in one place. You know, and the idea was they would do crazy things, not not crime, just silly things like go up to a department store and buy a rug together or something really crazy. Well, you know what it's become. That's uh, what's been going on in Philadelphia. Hooligans have been gathering and beating up just anybody they come across. They've had to drop the curfew by several hours. And you know what happened in London, and they both happened the same way. Why am I talking about this? Well, because it's, it's, it's the word that's in the Bible. Anarchy, lawlessness, people doing acts of evil with no restraint. That's what God is talking about. And we talked about the word mystery earlier. It's interesting that when he talks about this, uh, he uses that word again. Second Thessalonians. Listen to this. And now you know what is restraining. That he may be revealed in his own time. Who? The Antichrist. Restraining. What does that mean? It means holding back evil. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We'll talk about that in a minute. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Do You got that? If you don't know Jesus Christ, listen carefully to these words. There's a warning from God. He's saying, you've got a chance now to believe on Jesus and be saved. But there's coming a time very soon where he's going to keep uh, stop holding back evil. He's just going to let it loose. He's going to let people do whatever they want. Did you know you don't do all the evil you could do? Let may come as a surprise to you. People can get away with saying, you know, people are basically good. Not because people are basically good, but because God is keeping them from doing all the evil they would normally do. He did it at the flood. He says, my spirit will not strive forever with the hearts of men. He, he uh, pulled back and let sin go to its fullest extent. And he's going to do that again. And you don't want to be here when it happens. We just had glimpses of it here the last couple of weeks. You ain't seen nothing yet. The first two seals in the book of Revelation talk about this subject. Listen carefully. Now, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Do you know who that is on the horse? It's not Jesus. It's the Antichrist. Remember, I said in Thessalonians said that first thing's going to happen. The Antichrist is going to be revealed. Second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. That's a chilling verse. Now, the old commentators read that and they think, oh, yeah, he's talking about war and so on. And that's what you first think. That's not what he's talking about. If he'd meant war, he would have said it. He's talking about the lawlessness that's going to be taking place. We we get these pictures of the end times, you know, um, with people going to work and going shopping and doing their everyday stuff like business as usual. It's not going to be like that when a third of the world's population are dying from judgments. Comets hitting the the sea and the earth, plagues, famine. It's going to be lawlessness, anarchy to the worst extreme. I'm I'm pointing this out because back in Thessalonians, it's the only mystery in in the New Testament where he says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We can already see signs of it. But it's called a mystery because The evilness of people's hearts hasn't been really revealed. We have not seen people for what they're really like yet. And God's going to show it to us. Well, not to the believers. I'm not going to see it. But to the people and to the rest of creation. He's going to stop holding back that evil. Why does he do that? Isn't that a terrible thing? No, it's the right thing to do. God prefers truth. Right now, we're seeing people through false lenses, And people go around saying, yeah, people are basically good. If we just educate them, they'll stop doing crime. No. And God's going to prove that. Secondly, just like in the days of Noah and at other times the Amorites, it's like fruit, you know, you don't pick it until it's fully ripe. God's not going to bring judgment until He's pulled back and let sin ripen to its fullest extent. And then He's going to judge. Okay, well, we're, we're out of time. But uh, let, let me encourage you, if you're a believer this morning, look, Jesus is going to come again, okay? And he's going to take us to be with himself. Guaranteed. All right? And then we got plenty of proof if we didn't need it already from what he's already done. And we could go down the list of all the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. Every one of them, over 300 by some countings of the prophecies fulfilled. It all happened exactly as God said. And He says in Philippians, this is for everybody. This is what God says. Now listen, God is speaking, and He says this Every knee will bow. That includes you, it includes me. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. That's you. And that's me, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Now, they're going to be most people are going to be bending the knee. uh, How should I put it? Yeah, thank you. Against their will. Okay. some and there are some in this room who are going to be saying, praise the Lord. I've been saying it my whole life, Jesus is Lord. Where are you? It's going to happen, okay? You are going to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, and your knee will bend, and your tongue will confess that. How will it happen? Will He be your judge, or will He be your Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We will be literally lost without it. And we thank You, Lord, for a savior we thank you for jesus christ our lord who became a man we nailed him to a cross and there at our lowest point he died for our sins hallelujah thank you that he's raised from the dead he is alive again and his hand literally is on the doorknob waiting to come back and we who know him say even so come lord jesus and for anyone here who is not ready lord we pray they might not put it off knowing they don't Uh, They're not guaranteed another day or even another hour. And that what you say will come to pass. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.